Welcome to Interscription. It's an Oops All Tim episode where I bash the collective consciousness in with my thoughts on more of our two fantasy shows. Find out whether this gentleman prefers blonde, whether Overwatch 2 respects your queue time, and if Google's newest shot at a vertical ecosystem is worth your attention. Thanks for staying on this road with us. And just like that, we are podcasting. And by we, I mean me. Uh, Rich is actually out this week, so it is all me all the time. Not all the time, just this week. Hello, everybody. It's Thursday, uh, the 6th of October. Uh, I know that sometimes during the pod, we don't always call out the date. I thought it would be important to call it out today because uh, this will be the day before we we typically post. And today, uh, among a couple of uh, other news bits and items, uh, we will be covering the Pixel event that happened, the Google Pixel launch uh, event. They have new devices and some new capabilities with those devices, so I figured we'd talk a little bit about that. Uh, on top of that, we've got the Overwatch 2 launch, uh, which I will vetch about. And we even have uh, some news hanging from last week about Stadia, or uh, the soon-to-be lack of Stadia that's going on. Uh, so I guess just to start, uh, I'll rant a little bit about um, audio stuff. I have to say, particularly with audio stuff, uh, one of the things I'm learning uh, more and more, and uh, I've commiserated with Rich about this a bunch, uh, as we try to, you know, produce a great podcast for you guys and have good fidelity and uh, editing and so on and so forth. Lots of that fidelity and editing uh, by Rich's hand, by the way. So hopefully this week's will be uh, as palatable as possible. I uh, have uh, become keenly aware of the need for uh, quiet and quiet space and all that kind of stuff. Uh, sometimes when Rich and I are scheduling podcasting it's truly just around life stuff around when kids are going to be around and when they have events and when they're coming in and out of the uh, office or out of the house or, or what have you um, for both of our households so uh, kind of interesting to kind of think about and today uh, as I uh, I typically work from home on my on my day gig one of the things I found kind of uh, uh, interesting because I had to think about it I guess more today than uh uh, normally, uh, is kind of doing this midday here. Uh, I just little bits of things that I typically address during the day, uh, in betwixt, uh, some of my work from home stuff, uh, running the dryer or the washer, which you can't do. And, uh, I had a ceiling fan that was on, uh, that was, uh, actually, uh, some, some life stuff here. And I uh, had to scrub down, uh, uh, some, uh, a mattress. My, my little guy got sick. And so, uh, I uh, had to get that all figured out, and and so that was kind of drying, you know, and so the ceiling fan that's going on, and that's got to get turned off, and uh, it's kind of a beautiful day here in sunny Pennsylvania, and I had to, the windows open, and uh, just next door, uh, I'm sure comically over the uh, episodes we've had up until now, you've heard some sounds that happen, ambient sounds here and there, there's uh, nearby airports, so occasionally planes will go by, and, and that sort of thing, and um, there was... Uh, uh, just as I was about to record today, there was a 
uh, an 18-wheeler truck at the building next door, and it was backing up and uh, rumbling with its engines, and and things were unloading. So sort of crazy to, to think about, like, all the things that I had to kind of make stop, you know. I had to go close windows and get the whole house kind of as quiet as it can possibly be. Um, but we are here, and we have uh, we have the appropriate amount of silence, I believe, uh, in order to, to record a podcast with y'all. So I'll probably jump in here with uh, some of the stuff that I've been watching. Uh, the top two things, uh, Rings of Power and uh, House of the Dragons. Um, I guess I'll start with my House of the Dragons rant. I, again, and this is now the second week in a row, really not a fan. I did not enjoy this uh, episode at all. I... I started trying to ruminate on what it is that I think that's really kind of kind of bothering me about the about the show and uh, some spoiler alert here if you haven't done the most uh, recent uh, couple of episodes of House of the Dragons uh, I'll probably uh, be digging a little bit into that um, typically Rich and I try to stay pretty current on some of these episodes so I, I know that we will likely get into at least some bits of spoilery uh, uh, areas so uh, i apologize in advance for that but i think one of the things with house of the dragons and this has been something if you go back to game of thrones um with daenerys um and then you you know bring it all the way forward here where it's much more prevalent i guess particularly around particularly around the targaryen uh race of folks i feel like the and this is, I would assume, is sourced from the books and whatnot. It seems like the incest part of keeping kind of the bloodlines, quote unquote, pure uh, is a big thing. And it's quite accepted there. And I don't know. I don't know. I think that that might be one of the pivot points that just makes this far less palatable for me and far less uh, enjoyable. I, I think I think there's something so... Uh, palpably unrelatable about that that uh, that makes it difficult for me to, to sort of uh, sink my teeth into it um, there is good stuff here there is good acting um, there's some good writing um, I, what I said last week I think holds true I think that the uh, characters have become less redeemable less interesting uh, less relatable uh, with the time jump that they did in the in the uh, last two episodes that you know they kind of you know fast forwarded everybody and i i don't know that uh beyond that though the true unrelatability that kind of happens it seems like there's so much of this house of the dragon story that pivots on that incest and i don't know that i don't know that I, it might be a bridge too far for me this might just be my personal feeling about it uh but i feel like there's just uh it's not even really a footnote. It's it's sort of one of the things that hinges a lot of the discussion about uh, about the show, and um, I, I found myself thinking back to um, another show that um, actually the uh, Walking Dead. I'll go back to Walking Dead, uh, which just started. Um, I have not watched uh, the season, uh, the the opening for this final season yet. Uh, have a DVR ready to go, um, and part of me delaying that is the. Uh, Fear the Walking Dead uh, kind of spinoff show that they have for that one of the spinoff shows for that. 
I'm actually uh, a little bit behind on that, so I'm, I'm catching that up prior to jumping in. Um, they're not typically super related. I mean, a character or two, or you know, will will uh, overlap there and move between shows, but but for the most part, they're they're somewhat separate. But um, just chronologically, I've sort of broken them in into two uh, two meals like that, if you will. So I'm trying to get through uh, Fear the Walking Dead. So I think one of the things that uh, sort of uh, as I try to think through that, I, I I think when I go back to The Walking Dead, getting back here to House of the Dragons, uh, House of the Dragon, it's going to look that up one day. Uh, when I when I go back to Walking Dead and I think about how incredibly successful that show was, I mean, it was a, a, a really as much as I think Breaking Bad did amazing things for AMC and. Um, I guess Mad Men also with AMC. I mean, they've definitely had some great marquee uh, titles. I feel like The Walking Dead was such a splash for them. It was such a game changer for for the network at large. And I felt very much with the uh, with The Walking Dead, there was a point where I feel like so many people fell off. Um, and I'll give it three seconds. Three, two, one. It was the Negan stuff that happened. I think that that was the pivot point for that show that um, I know lots of people fell off. They, that show became less interesting. I don't think that it meant that the show was so much worse directly after the the Negan uh, bits that happened. And I speak specifically to when they introduce Negan, he comes out with his bat, Lucille, um, and he kind of owns uh rick's whole crew and he has them in front of there and he kind of threatens all of them and then you know there's the scene with glenn and and how uh, um how really uh just really tough to watch i mean just really tough to watch like and i feel like that was i feel like for all of the you know just time after time after time they're just you know i mean there's certainly a lot of characters that died off before then so it really wasn't necessarily about killing off characters here and there um, and there's certainly lots of blood and guts. I mean, it was walking dead, right? Like they had just, you know, zombies just, you know, ripped apart and, you know, entrails everywhere and rotting corpses and so on. I do feel like that was a moment that somehow became a bridge too far for so many people. I remember myself watching it and feeling it was very cold after it. Like I, I didn't, uh, I didn't want to watch it as much after that. Um, I did stick with it. I let it lapse and would catch up, you know, a couple episodes at a time. Um, you know, sometimes a whole season at a time. And, um, but it was like the magic was gone. Like right after that, that was a, a pivot, uh, for me. And in speaking anecdotally, 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 boy, some of these words today, uh, with, with some folks, I felt like that was the, time that was the one where everybody sort of just couldn't relate for as weird and fictional as this zombie apocalypse was as a you know uh week over week show as uh as much as they did kill off characters that there was this 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 something happened in that moment that was just uh too far for people to to relate to it was too dark maybe it was too uh outside of what they could uh process and and uh and and be part of uh, and in some weird way, I feel like there's something kind of like that here with the House of the Dragon. I, f I feel like that is uh, is very much with the, with with this real push on the incest part of it that like feels so um, 
not just unrelatable, but kind of gross, you know, in a way that, that is, is, is too much. It's too much, uh, for me to suspend my disbelief in this, in this universe anymore. I don't want to, to, uh, think through this, uh, this experience with any of them because it, it is, it is pretty, um, it's, it's pretty difficult. And, and I think this, this last episode, there was, uh, there was actually a, a scene, uh, with, uh, Damon and Renera, um, which was, you know, filmed, you know, it was kind of a light touch sex scene that was happening between them as they sort of consummate things. And, and I don't know, they were, and they just, they spent a lot of time on it. It was just very unrelatable. It was very frustrating and gross. And, and I just, you know, and I was just, I felt like I was almost like shackled to watch this thing. And I, I, I and I, I just didn't quite, I don't know. I, I think it was a too far for me. I think this was the Negan moment for this show where I, f I felt like, um, they had already, even when they hinted at it, when, before they did the time jump with Renera being young, um, which, you know, was doubly gross. Um, there was just, uh, there was just something, uh, about it, like never waning and like it just kind of being picked up where it left off that not only validated the the scene when they were younger, uh, but now just puts it, you know, full blast in everybody's face. And I, I, uh, I don't know. I think that that has been, uh, extraordinarily tough for me. Um, and it's frustrating because there are some wonderful things about the show. Um, it is still top tier stuff. I mean, it is, it is well wrought it is well built. There is, uh, uh, all the dragon stuff, I think, uh, the special effects of the Game of Thrones and into into this prequel series have always been very strong and always been very responsible. I never felt like they did special effects that were beyond the 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 reach of of the special effects houses. Uh, I am certain that this show gets a uh, an ample budget to get some of this stuff done. It is certainly some of the most uh, popular stuff HBO has ever had, uh, but. It is, um, sorry, particularly I'll say about the dragons, you know, and, and that there are so many more dragons in House of the Dragon. And I think that that uh, is handled truly well. Anytime you see them on screen, it just, they, they, they really have a good blending, you know, with the physical. It feels like they're grounded in the world. Uh, they just look and feel like big ass lizards flying around, shooting fire things. Like it feels right. I mean, it, it, it definitely feels right. They've, they've gotten that right. Um, so I am impressed with that. Um, I, uh, I do like some of the characters, uh, to varying degrees still in terms of, um, even though they aren't quite as relatable and some of them still have these despicable moments or stupid moments that, that don't feel like, uh, they work with the, uh, with the intelligence or the, the wherewithal of the characters. Um, the King continues to be, uh, one of my favorites. I, I think that there's a sweetness about that King that, uh, as, uh, as much as he is a Targaryen and maybe he understands the incest stuff a little bit more than, you know, <laughs> than he, I would think he should, um, you know, the, the, the way that characters acted and the way he's like really just trying to be a good King and he's trying and he's understanding the burden of, of ruling. Um, do you think that's a great character for sure? Um, I think that, um, the couple in the drift mark, um, I'm losing their names now, um, that, um, uh, their, uh, son and daughter, um, are actually, you know, both, uh, been kind of married off the son, married Renera, um, and the daughter married Damon. Um, and so, uh, I think that couple, um, there's a, there's a great, uh, connection between them. Um, there's motivations that, um, are a little strained at times, but I do 
I do understand them a little bit more uh, than some of the other characters. Um, I do like where they're at um, and how they've been built over time. They seemed to be not very interesting in the beginning, and maybe they've they've just because everybody else has faded back into you know jerks that I don't want <laughs> to pay attention to. I think maybe they are are my favorites, um, just as out of contrast now. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's it, it it is it is interesting that the, uh, even though there is still some top tier stuff that is still extremely well built, um, good craft in the show, um, that I, uh, I don't find it relatable anymore. I, I, I don't, uh, I don't, uh, enjoy watching it. I, I think that that's been, uh, that's been kind of difficult. Um, I did, uh, laugh out loud at a couple of moments in this last one. Um, there was, uh, there was kind of a, right after a big old dragon scene, there was a, a battle, if you will, with, uh, some of the younger kids. I don't know exactly what their ages are at this point, but they look, like preteen, barely teen, you know, all the ages of them, I, I think somewhere around there. Um, just, you know, just looking at them, uh, I, I did not look up exactly how old they are, but they get into this big fight that culminates into some nasty business. And then that fight is kind of brought before the king. It's like in the middle of the night and everybody gets woken up and they're all, you know, in this one big chamber. And somebody says something to one of the kids about, you know, tell me what happened. And all of the kids just start uh, bickering and yelling. And the audio mix of it was absolutely perfect. Like any 80s show where a whole bunch of kids are arguing and they just have a whole bunch of yammering and it just sounds like a cafeteria at an elementary school that they're all, all yelling at each other. And they did almost that exact audio mix of all these kids yelling at each other, uh, trying to, you know, say, well, you're lying. No, you're lying or, or whatever. And, uh, and I did laugh at that because it was, it was a funny way to to kind of mix that you know in 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 the scene i thought that was pretty good um damon as despicable as that character is and with all the incense stuff with his niece i guess uh is, you know is, is you know almost impossible for me to to want to hear anything about that character but i do sort of love that um rich uses a a, a term called chaos uh, he says chaos agent uh, sometimes which is a, a kind of a perfect um uh, encapsulation of, of that character he's a chaos agent he's always just coming in and fucking things up and making making a big mess i i do love that when when he has been the one that's sort of broken everything that uh there's almost always a scene where most of the problems in this room are in some way directly or indirectly because of him and then he sort of just walks in and he leans on the side of the wall and he might as well be eating an apple he's just like watching this whole mess go on in front of him and and does a fantastic job of just sort of simmering in the corner watching all of his work unfold um and so that happened again this this episode made me laugh um but uh anyway uh so there's good stuff still generally appointment viewing i'll still be there for it you know for the foreseeable future um it's uh i i also do acknowledge that there has been some setup i think richard mentioned this to me might have even been on the last pod uh where there is uh, there is a central conflict for the crown right for the iron throne like the, that is coming and they have to pot boil some things and they have to definitely move some pieces around and have different uh, characters you know alienate from one another or be with each other or disappear or whatever in order to get to this conflict um, so I I do uh, I do believe that you know that's you know where we're going and you know hopefully the the payoff will have been worth it um, you know in in, in some part 
but really just uh, is super frustrating. I, I think that I, I, I am having such a difficult time relating now. I, I, I just uh, suspend my disbelief about dragons and far off lands and, you know, fictional races and magic and everything else. And I just can't get on the other side uh, with the incense, incest stuff. It just feels uh, like a bridge too far. It is the Negan moment for, for this show um for me um so as i have done and uh i hope to not do this every single week because maybe it, it, it isn't fair to either show um but comparing and contrasting to rings of power uh absolutely my favorite tv this past week uh what a terrific episode um it uh is is got such a distinct flavor to it while at the same time fully understanding uh, the the shoulders of giants upon which it stands with uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy and then even the Hobbit trilogy to to some extent like all of Peter Jackson's work um, it seems like it understands that I always felt like in all of the moments that I've watched every uh, part of every episode up until now including this last one uh, I've really felt like they um, we that's a kind of a new sort of term that's being floated around they understood the assignment and I do feel Rings of Power understood the assignment clearly here we spoke a little bit about how uh, these shows both House of the Dragon and, and Rings of Power are um, similar in that they got a similar assignment right like a, a, a whole show that uh, uh, or a series of movies that came before it um, and then these are prequels um, the original work uh, that they're prequeling uh, is based off of a book um, or books uh, plural and um, these prequels are also based off of books but they are based off of um, much lighter touch books that are just you know suggesting things so that there's more whole cloth to have to be uh, invented um, both you know prestige television you know uh, lots of lots of similarities here we've talked about that um but i really feel like there's a great uh respect for peter jackson's work here um i had felt it in several scenes and in several uh things that had happened before but i have to say the one that made it extremely clear for me uh for this episode is there were a few different battles that happened um and uh, different groups of people fighting orgs, fighting you know each other, etc. Et and uh, there's a couple of great scenes. Uh, so Galadriel actually is on horseback and uh, she's riding into battle. And there was a scene where I don't know if they were shooting arrows at her or throwing a spear at her, and she. Uh, as is super, you know, fictional and silly, but but also very appropriate for Peter Jackson's work. Uh, she sort of half dismounts the horse. I mean, she sort of uh, bends at the torso and and folds herself over like a like a uh, uh, wavy inflatable floating arm man uh, at a car dealership, and she just flops over to the side of the horse to basically use the horse as as cover. You know, so she folds herself half over to to hide from the arrow or from the spear as it's coming through and it was such an, a very peter jackson thing to do I, I think that all the lord of the rings stuff certainly the hobbit stuff as well have wonderful battle sequences um that have some whimsy and some fun to them have some really to describe it no other way other than badass uh lots of you know great uh, uh almost martial arts moves in in some places uh, there's there's another great um uh I, I don't remember his name uh the there's the uh elf that uh, kind of stays back with the humans um and he gets into it with a with a big old uh 
Uruk, I think it is. I don't think they're technically orcs. I think they're Uruk. And um, and he's getting tossed around like a rag doll, and he's using some some pretty intense martial arts moves. He's doing wheel kicks and a couple of other things that are uh, really great, like just some really great scenes uh, of of action um, that that uh, that are that are just loved. They're loved like everything else is loved in the show, um, and uh, haven't really seen that here with uh, House of the Dragon just yet, with maybe the exception of the the, the storming the beach thing that Damon did. Um, and even then, I, I think that was good i just don't think it doesn't even hold a candle to some of the stuff in rings of power um uh great characters characters you do care about uh characters with motivations boy there's um and they're imperfect in some ways right like i think galadriel uh is 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 written so well i think her character even uh, has a um has a great sort of uh drive that will go against her being the good guy and that will push her past being a good guy um in some ways that that it gets very close you know, um in in this episode and certainly in episodes prior to um when she had her you know it was the first episode when she had her whole uh uh troop uh, mutiny and basically said you know <laughs> we're going back whether you want to or not uh which was uh it's fascinating. It's a it, it's a it's a great thing, you know. The uh, Halbrand's uh, motivation is certainly uh, uh, super interesting. There, you know, I know there's more to unpack with him. Um, the there was such a great pendulum of like hope and despair in this particular episode. There would be like things look awful, and then they kind of swing really good, and you think they won, and uh, wait a minute, they didn't maybe quite win because there was some not so great moments that you know that that they hadn't realized when they were fighting and so then it swings into despair again and then it swings into hope again and then you think things are clear and then it swings back into despair. there was a great uh uh tick and talk and going back and forth with with it uh uh great uh in ways that you know only the best tv can do um kind of grab your emotions and then take you on that ride whether you want to go there or not um make you care about all of those characters i wanted to know that all of them made it, um, and uh, I can't say that about House of the Dragon uh, in many cases. So um, then it ends in a very big sort of uh, literally explosive kind of finale um, that uh, just makes you immediately want to hit play on the next episode. Uh, so uh, probably appointment viewing for me tomorrow if I can if I can carve out some time. If not, you know, early Saturday morning with a big breakfast. I'm very excited to keep going with Rings of Power. Um, so so that was great. Um, I'll throw in one more here that I had been uh, that I got to to watch, and I had to piece it apart. It's it's almost three hours long, and so over the last I mean week plus I, from when it came out um, is uh, Blonde on uh, on Netflix. Uh, this is the like fictionalized kind of story of uh, Marilyn Monroe uh, from when she was a kiddo um, all the way through I guess her death, um, and. Uh, uh, I didn't really know a lot about that character other than, you know, the stuff that's very zeitgeist, like, you know, where it's just, you know, part of uh, cultural consciousness about um, who she is, you know, and and what have you. So um, having some more of that texture, I, I think that um, it's interesting. It's interesting to see if it. some of it sort of plays pretty uh, straight from a story beat perspective um, in in, you know, at that period of time, you know, how. Uh, evil and horrible and misogynistic the uh you know the and male dominated the 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 uh, hollywood industry was at the time and uh everything she had to go through in order to you know become the person that she was and um some of her uh i guess naivete uh some of her 
uh, substance abuse, some of her um, uh, mental challenges and, and, uh, and illness uh, that she had to uh, fight through. Um, I know this is based on a book, um, and uh, which I have not read, and I also don't really have a lot of biographical data about her, and so I don't know how much of this uh, hues to you know real life versus you know kind of fictional fictionalizing uh, some of it for the sake of a movie. Um, so I'll just speak without saying whether or not all of this is 100% accurate or not, um, and just more of was this a successful movie. Um, and I'm going to say I think that it was at times very beautiful. Um, I think that it was filmed in a way that uh, uh, had some really clever editing and some cle clever cutting between scenes. And um, uh, there's a very super, super cool, uh, interesting sort of dreamlike sequence. Uh, uh, there's a time when she, you know, uh, uh, has... Um, uh, you know, with, with her, you know, uh, alleged mental illnesses and with, with, uh, her substance abuse and that, um, there were at least a couple of moments I can, I can point to, um, where she would be, you know, under the influence of something and also in kind of like a sleepy sort of dreamlike state and she would transition and the scene would actually transition from her from being in one location to another and sometimes back. Um, and, uh, I thought that was handled outstanding. I mean, I, I, I am sure it's not the only time it's happened before, um, but there's a really interesting visual design to how they transitioned, um, her character from one place to another. And, and then again, sometimes back, um, which is really, really neat. Um, I, I really do have to hats off to the, uh, to that editing team and the, the creative vision. Um, I don't remember the, I think the guy's first name is Andrew. I don't remember the director, but I guess he, he translated it, sort of kind of wrote it for the screen. Um, and then also directed it, um, watched a little bit of making of on it. And, um, he has a, a process whereby he rolls the camera even between takes. So there's really no takes per se. They're not oneers all the time. Some of them, sometimes there's scenes that are oneers, but, um, he does, uh, apparently roll the, the camera even between takes so that the editing can happen later. Um, and, and to facilitate that, one of the things I thought that was interesting because this is sort of a period piece, right? I guess it started in the twenties or thirties, uh, when she was a kid and goes all the way through into the sixties. Um, so all of the, uh, the people on staff were, uh, you know, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, lighting folks, cinematography folks, you know, whatever, anybody on set, um, that has to make the scene happen. Um, all of them are actually dressed in period appropriate attire. So if for some reason they would walk into a scene or he would keep the camera rolling in order to try and capture some other moments or to make scenes longer and move them, uh, if he were to get somebody that was in on staff drifting in and out of a scene or, you know, he, he could get that framing, um, that would have been perfect if it wasn't for this one person that was just walking around, you know, with whatever, um, he can, he can actually still use it if, if, if that, you know, it, it makes that scene more compatible, I guess, you know, from a filming perspective. Um, so I thought that was neat and that was actually a smart way to kind of handle it. Um, and, uh, but anyway, uh, kind of getting back to the, the, uh, uh, the, the movie itself. Um, it's a tough watch at points. Um, you know, I, I, there's nothing short of abuse that she had gone through in, in, in a few different scenes and, uh, with different, uh, people, uh, I guess she had been, 
uh, married to Joe DiMaggio, uh, which I did not know. She was married to uh, Arthur Miller, which I guess he's a playwright. Um, also didn't know that. I, I wasn't really particularly familiar with her life. Um, um, some alleged abortions that happened um, uh, over her uh, over her life. And uh, the way that it was portrayed in the movie, I will say that, um, and I've seen some, you know, internet scuttlebutt about that and how uh, maybe the movie's uh, Hughes very pro-life and, uh, and I, I um, or shames abortion um, or is anti-abortion or, or what have you. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure that that was my takeaway from what the creative work was here. Um, I'm not just here to say that that was necessarily a wrong uh, take on it. And certainly art is to be interpreted. And if uh, it offended somebody in that way, um, you know, certainly that's it's as much as I am not in any way looking to, you know, uh, have my opinion changed about whether or not I thought it was anti-abortion or not. I, I, you know, certainly reserve the right for other people to think that about it. Um, but I will say from my personal taste and experience, that is not what this movie was about or what it was trying to do. Um, I actually found out a little bit later, um, some more texture, if you will, about the, uh, about that there's a, a kind of a inner monologue literally about, uh, between Marilyn and her, uh, in utero baby. And, uh, it, at first blush seemed like that was sort of like a target for, for why this felt so, uh, anti-abortion, but it was, uh, but that dialogue actually was, uh, supposed to be represented by her younger self, her daughter, uh, her as a daughter, as opposed to, um, her when she was older, um, which maybe wasn't very clear in the movie either. I didn't actually know that until I did the research afterwards, but, um, anyway, here or there, I did not take that from this movie. I didn't, I do not, uh, agree with that take, but that doesn't necessarily mean that other people have to uh, agree or not agree with that take. Um, uh, Ana de Armas is the actress that did it. Uh, wonderful job with, uh, her acting. Uh, they spent a lot of time making her look a lot like Marilyn Monroe. Um, and, uh, she apparently did an awful lot of, you know, research on the role and that sort of stuff. Um, and so I think, uh, visually translating her to be Marilyn Monroe in all the scenes that they are recreating for this movie, um, particularly when she was in Marilyn Monroe was in other movies and now they're filming kind of tiny, small bits as this is sort of more, you know, uh, fictionally yet biographical, um, looking at, you know, some of these other moments, uh, in her life and when she was in these movies. But I will say that, uh, um, the one thing that was distracting, um, that was kind of difficult, um, is that, um, I believe she might be Cuban. I, I don't remember. Um, I think they said that in one of the articles, but I haven't sourced that, so I don't know. Um, but Ana Darmus, she still has some of her accent. Um, um, English is not her first language, um, which she admits in one of the interviews that I saw. Um, so I, I, you know, applaud her for you know whatever work she did with voice coaches and what whatnot uh, to get to the other side of of portraying Marilyn Monroe. Um, she still has a bit of that accent, um, and. Uh, it can be easy to get locked on that um, if the movie isn't moving along at a at a very 
a weird dreamlike pace. And it is a lot of times. And I think that that probably helps that problem, to be honest. Uh, the way that everything is displayed and uh, all of the very cool special effects and things that they, they use to kind of move you between, you know, all the various uh, 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 parts of her life and career. Uh if it was told more straight, I think that there would be a lot of focus on her on her uh, accent. Um, she does voice work where there's like kind of a breathy quality that uh, Marilyn Monroe has and some of her, you know, very few famous things that, you know, we've heard her say over the years. Um, uh, and I, I, I think that Anna Darmus does get that part well. I, I, I think you can definitely hear that sort of breathy quality um, to Marilyn Monroe's voice in her portrayal there, but it still does have that little uh, uh, accent in the in the in the background that she never really quite sheds for the role, um, and that's tough. That's a tough thing to kind of um, get past. Um, I think that the the movie overall works. Um, I did uh, enjoy. It might be a bit of a strong word because there are some tough to watch parts in it um but uh i think that it uh was a a bit of a fresher way to tell some of the some of the tragic moments um relative to some of the more kind of on the nose biographical movies that we've all seen and experienced i got to watch the one for queen and uh i'm trying to think of some of the other ones uh De lovely was actually uh the cole porter store was you know, a huge fan of that one but um and that also had some more clever ways of kind of weaving things in and out and i do kind of appreciate that i, I think that when you have an artist and they're in this artist world um and it's not just all the lows and all the terrible things that they go through but also kind of the the punchy highs that they experience as well because they're artists and they're, you know, living this, this dream that, you know, uh, the rest of us are only sort of getting the, the bits, the scraps that are falling off the table, you know, whether it's a movie that we watch of theirs or a you know, song that we're listening to. Um, and I, I do think that that's a great, uh, gift to get to see a little bit more of that. Um, and then also to render it, um, in such a way that, um, is probably just as exciting, uh, for us as it would have been for them, albeit in a different, you know, light of course. And, and after the fact, uh, I, I, so I did enjoy it. I think, uh, I think it was a, a well, uh, a well constructed movie. Um, probably do a little bit more research between now and next pod just to see how much of that was, uh, super fictionalized. Again, this is based off of a book um, that I guess would also technically be fictionalized off of uh, her life. Um, so I don't know how far this drifts from the book and then how far it drifts from her life. But uh, in terms of just, uh, you know, a, a, a interesting uh, visual experience, um, almost music video like in, at, at some moments, um, I, I think uh, it's, it, is, it is quite good. I think it, it's, it's handled well there. Um, so anyway, Blonde on Netflix, I, I, I enjoyed that as well. I am going to jump to our first break here. And uh, when I come back, we will uh, chit chat about uh, Overwatch 2 uh, and the Pixel event and a little bit of Stadia stuff um, before we wrap. See you guys on the other side. And we are back. I am back, and you are back with me. A couple things we'll go over in the news section. I'll try to keep it pretty uh, brief, as I don't have my 
brother in arms here to bounce some of these ideas off of and certainly would like to get some of his takes on them next week but i'll uh tell him a bit more straight maybe put in a little bit of seasoning uh, myself um first off before i get to a couple of the bigger news items uh overwatch 2 the sequel to overwatch uh from blizzard entertainment uh launched this week um, putting big old air quotes around launch because uh, I had a very tough time actually getting into the game. Um, I believe this was Tuesday the 4th that the game launched and I had uh, a terrible time trying to get in. Uh, when I went to launch the game, uh, I was greeted by a queue of about 2,000 uh, people ahead of me. It seems like that's sort of the code for just a lot of people ahead of you um i don't know if like each uh shard or instance of the servers that are out in the cloud that are powering all of this only hold 2000 at a time so when you go to join you're at the back of the line of anyone that you get to but it seemed like 2000 was a pretty typical number which is sort of weird um so in any case q of 2000 uh yesterday the fifth i actually tried to log in got a q of 2000 stared at it for quite some time and it didn't move um, at that point, I think my controller fell asleep and the Xbox sort of uh, uh, didn't seem to hold that place anymore because when I came back later, it was still at 2000. Um, I could have just been stuck in that queue. I'm not sure. Um, so anyway, uh, when I came back later on, a couple hours later, um, I had gone out to a couple of their apps in the Xbox and came back into uh, Overwatch 2 to see if it was any better. Again, landed at the uh, queue of 2000 people ahead of me and uh let it run for a little while messed around on my phone while i you know kind of sat through the queue and it did finally start to move um where it was you know kind of slowly counting down um this is probably over the course of i don't know 20 30 minutes something like that um which for me and i think uh, both rich and i have talked about this on the pod before i uh gaming time sometimes as an adult with kiddos uh can be somewhat precious and uh, one of the things i love about a lot of the gaming experiences we can have now that wasn't necessarily always the case even with the last generation of consoles um is that with everything being on ssds now um again shout out to a quick resume on xbox uh the idea of loading into a game um has been severely reduced almost to nothing uh, in some cases and very short load times in others uh, and that uh, is fantastic for me. Um, also letting, you know, patches run overnight and, you know, pretty streamlined patching uh, experiences on the Xbox as well. Um, makes it so that me just jumping into a game and starting to play is uh, fairly seamless um, and there is not a lot of wait time there. Uh, so this, for me and my gaming habits, having a queue to stare at for that period of time was almost interminable um, relative to the amount of time I had to, you know, dedicate to it. Um, I think when I mentioned at the beginning of the pod, you know, I had a uh, kiddo that got sick, so I had to uh, sort of break from all that anyway and, and do a whole bunch of laundry and clean up and all this kind of stuff. So there, there was certainly a um, a, a, a very uh, perfect example of how precious um, and fleeting sometimes gaming time moments is, is, is uh, at this age and, and time for me. Uh, so uh, again, uh, getting to the point that uh, I am impressed that you know the technologies are there to take away all of the friction uh, between you know myself and, and getting into a game. Um, this queue was was pretty rough. In any case, getting to the 
point when the queue uh, finally got me down to, you know, I was in line to play, um, watching it count down faster and faster, you know, after that 20, 30 minute period, uh, got in and I was greeted with a log into your Blizzard account and scan this QR code um, and it wanted my phone number. Um, and so I guess this is uh, sort of some sort of, uh, I guess they're trying to use like a real name, a real ID kind of uh, system with Blizzard where they're uh, trying to get away from bots. They're trying to get away from people uh, account jumping so that, you know, if they do something that they shouldn't be doing in the game, whether it's cheating or, uh, you know, unsportsmanlike conduct, then uh, they want to be able to, you know, make the this particular piece of it anyway, they want to increase the friction a bit so that people have to kind of stick to the usernames that they're, that are chosen. And, and so that, you know, they can be more easily identified if they're making bad decisions. So that's what this is for. Um, there was a warning I saw in a blog somewhere that this was going to happen. Um, a couple of days prior that I, I had read it, maybe they published it even earlier. Um, not a big deal. Um, you know, a casual overwatch player at best, uh, certainly not a, a, a problem for me to, you know, drop in my phone number and set up multi-factor authentication for my account. So, you know, it all locks in with, with my ID, no worries there. Um, a little frustrating that they couldn't maybe have cleared that prior to me sitting in a queue. I, I think that that, that was one of the things that bothered me. Um, I, I was wanting to basically use that time, right. Instead of getting to the front of the line and then having to register my, my blizzard ID with the, with my phone number, definitely something that could have been handled while I was sitting in queue, um, or days before or whatever, right. Like the fact that it was pushing at that moment, um, whatever I click on that, I get into the, the login, my blizzard account first on my phone, which is where I thought they wanted me to do it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and then looking at the uh there was also a, a a moment where the um the actual xbox moved over to the uh the the mfa piece and uh wanted me to also log into my um my blizzard account in like sort of like a uh, i'm not describing this very well but almost like a windowed uh browser experience and i could tell because of the way it, it almost felt like dumping to the edge browser on the xbox and so i i you know i'm like moving a cursor around and like clearing text out of the way and moving the on-screen keyboard around like it's very clunky um wasn't really sure why I was even doing that on the console like that. I, I don't think I've seen that almost in any game ever. Um, but anyway, so I, I complete that. Um, it spins for a while, and then it actually drops me to the back of the queue again. So another 2,000 uh, uh, people ahead of me, um, which was exactly enough for me to just say, fuck this. I put the controller down. I said uh, that, you know, obviously you guys have way too much going on tonight, and I, I can't, you know, I'm using too much of my time just staring at the at, – at, at a, at a, at a wheel, you know, while it, while it's, while it's grinding away in, in the queue, trying to get me to a game. So, um, wasn't, you know, I wanted to certainly have a little bit of this information for the pod, you know, in, in terms of just seeing what the changes were for, for Overwatch two versus one, but, um, alas, dear listeners, I did not get that for you. Um, I did, uh, I, uh, was, uh, sending some, uh, messages over to Rich to, to tell him, uh, kind of some of my frustrations here. I believe, I believe it was NBA Live 06, I think is what it was. And for folks who are into the NBA uh, video games that are on console, I guess some of them probably had PC at some point. Um, 
NBA Live was EA's uh, version of basketball games, and then there was the NBA 2K games that were from 2K Sports. And over time, particularly as it came into like the Xbox 360 generation around there, um, the uh, it seemed like NBA Live was getting its lunch eaten by NBA 2K, and so uh, so much so that there were like times when they actually. Uh, went on hiatus with NBA Live, and I think there was one other version of NBA Live that wasn't even called that. Um, boy, I, I can't remember. I didn't mean to get too deep into this particular topic today, but uh, I do remember this was on the Xbox 360, and I remember um, there was a big push at that time to talk about um, the next generation, right? Like, what does the next generation mean? Um, what cool things can we do in the next generation that we couldn't do in the last generation? And kind of separating out like the capabilities of different, you know, boxes. Um, much more of a continuum these days with the Xbox One and the Xbox Series consoles and and, and whatnot. And, uh, lots of inks built on that, but back then, you know, moving from the original Xbox to the Xbox 360, there was a big push, and same thing with PlayStation 2 to PlayStation 3 at that time, uh, big push to show what is this new expensive box that you just put under your TV, what can it do? Um, me not being a basketball game guy, uh, didn't really care about uh, those games in particular, but there was a demo for NBA Live 06, I'm almost positive it was NBA Live 06 because I'm trying to think through the years of when they came out. There weren't that many of them. Um, so hopefully I've got that right. The story goes anyway that when you would first load up the game, you know, beautiful art, you know, and to in the splash screen of all the logos for all the uh, parts of the uh, NBA uh, and all the various teams and, and you would choose the type of game you would want to uh uh, play and in the demo it was very limited but uh, you would pick the team that you wanted to be on and um, a couple other you know uh, modifiers to before you would start the basketball game and then you would hit start and uh, I'll always remember just my jaw hitting the ground immediately it would uh, I would say immediately like within a few seconds it would drop you into this really cool looking uh, virtual uh basketball court uh, kind of stadium look and it was all neon and tron looking very 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 futuristic um and it was just you you know, whatever character you you they, they gave you some sort of avatar character i don't remember if it was a named player or not um and a basketball and you would basically just be shooting free throws and uh you know and practicing dunks and 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 just playing it was just you and this like neon looking court um immediately dropped you into this thing right after choosing all your options for the actual game you're about to play and in the background the game was loading the game was loading the the real basketball game you were about to play um and so it was like this very clever way of hiding the fact that they had a, a load time coming up, right? Like there was going to be more, uh, obviously much more fully rendered stadium full of people and, uh, you know, two teams and, and, and logos and lighting and everything, right? Like it was going to be a big old, you know, uh, proper basketball game you're about to engage in. And they used this 
this sort of, you know, VR-ish, <laughs> like looking, Tron-ish looking uh, basketball, you know, shoot hoops around uh, by yourself sort of thing as a loading screen um, so that you had something to do, so that you weren't literally watching a progress bar go from the left side to the right side of the screen uh, and then get dumped into it. Um, you know, maybe throwing some text on screen or what have you. It sort of gave you, you know, some runaround time, some things to do while it was about to load you back into, you know, into proper basketball um, or load you into proper basketball here. Um, and I'll always remember being so blown away by that and what a cool idea that is because it was kind of respecting your time. It already knew that for the next 30 seconds, 60 seconds, whatever the load time was going to be, it's going to be pretty boring. You want to jump into a basketball game, but we can't get you there yet because we have to load everything. So let us give you just some screwing around to do here. And, you know, when when we're ready for you, we'll bring you in. Um, and, uh, and I really, really enjoyed that. I thought that was such a smart way of of utilizing this new technology um, that were in these boxes, you know, where there's just like so much more headroom than in the previous generation. Uh, other games have, I'm sure, possibly even before that, certainly subsequent to that, have used little similar ideas. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I know there was, I can't remember, I can remember some of the bits, but not necessarily what games they were in. There was one that was like a little Pac-Man looking game that was was outside of, of, the, of the game you were about to jump into. I want to say Assassin's Creed. Um, and maybe one of the devil may cries. I don't remember, but there's a few of them where the loading screens in between, you still had your character and you were still just running around, you know, comboing or jumping around or doing something. You were still interacting with the screen and, and being busied, uh, while the, the game loaded in, you know, again, respecting your time. And I couldn't help but think with Overwatch 2, why not do that? And this is a great opportunity for blizzard to give you something to do while you're waiting in a queue i mean this is a live service game there are going to be times when there's queues there's going to be events there's going to be busy times um one of the things that actually happened um it's called a ddos attack a distributed denial of service attack um the the uh not getting too deep into uh network stuff but uh there's uh typically when a website or a service in this case blizzard's servers for for overwatch uh we're being attacked actually over these last uh, these last 48 hours or so or somewhere some 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 subset of that and uh, since launch and uh essentially a, a ddos attack is when the 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 evildoers that are 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 attacking the the service uh they flood it with traffic um and so usually it isn't of any consequence but because most networking technologies and stacks have to deal with that within the server to decide whether or not that is uh traffic that is needed to be addressed or not or discarded uh that takes up a certain amount of uh processing power whether in the networking switches or in the servers or whatever um both um, in, in some cases and by flooding the service with attacks, um, then the servers slash networking uh, infrastructure uh, has to busy itself with dealing with that, even to just discard it, even to say, I, you know, obviously this isn't a, a good request, so I'm just going to discard it. But when there's such an, and they call it a flood, uh, when it is flooded with that traffic, um, then it will slow down the resources that are needed to run Overwatch 2 servers, and and therefore, you know, they, they get tied up with this busy work that is, is having, and that's why it's called an attack. 
Um, so anyway, that by saying denial of service, the DDoS, the um, it, it is denying the servers the ability to service the clients um, by having to be busied with with these attacks that are coming through. And so allegedly, that is something that also happened. Um, the president of Blizzard, uh, Mikey Barra, he actually, uh, I guess, put something out. I don't know if it was over, over Twitter or on their support page. Um, and I guess this was Tuesday. Um, uh, yeah, t- Tuesday. I guess there was uh, they 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 were mitigating a, a mass DDoS attack uh, on the servers. So uh, there were extenuating circumstances here. It's a brand new launch. We get that. You know, it's going to be busy. People want to just log in. I did. You know, even though I'm a casual uh, Overwatch player, as I stated, still wanted to see what all the hubbub was about. Uh, tried to log in. I'm sure lots of people more casually were trying to log in. Lots of diehards also trying to log in. And so when you combine all that with them actually getting being under attack by you know ne'er do wells, uh, that that's certainly a you know a, a, a potential reason why they can't actually you know properly service their uh, their their customers. Um, so I get that it's extenuating circumstances this week, um, but I also thought to myself, with this level of of potential. Uh, queue waiting and maybe this will never happen again with overwatch 2 maybe i kind of doubt that but maybe that's the case what a cool thing and it feels like blizzard would be the company to do this to have some little game that would be happening going on one of the things i was a little bit uh, bummed out is that there was no like bot match or something where i could or maybe i could just pick my character you know what i mean or just play or just run around a map that's already going to obviously load locally because it's installed on my hard drive um, just so that I could get to know the map more and look around um, you know something that has screenshots uh, I think that there was there's opportunity to have an a mostly offline experience um, for for overwatch 2 um, that busies everybody that they get to spend some time on and have the the queue counter up in the top right hand corner um, I don't know if it was Overwatch 1. I know there were several games that I think tried to do this, and Microsoft tried to push it in the Xbox One era, where you, they sort of treated the dashboard more like a holistic experience. So you would have your... Uh, you would have your... Um, like a like a game, for example, like Overwatch, that would go to load in, and um, there would be a queue, or you know, you'd be waiting for a team to assemble or whatever. Um, Halo might have been... Halo 5 might have been one of them. I don't remember now. I'm, I'm, I'm just grasping here. But um, it was a functionality built into the game where if you exited and just went to the dashboard and started watching Netflix or started doing something else, um, it would keep tabs on that queue launch for you. And when it was time for you to join, you would get a toast notification from the Xbox saying, hey, you're ready to join your game. And then you could just, you know, long press on the on the guide button and you could jump right back in. Um and so it was like treating this idea of of how your attention is probably not going to be held by this, you know, this very slow moving queue that's 20, 30 minutes out that literally just has a, a spinning circle there um, and some low ambient music in the Overwatch 2 logo. And that's it. There's nothing else. There's nothing else to abide your time with. Um, yes, we can all have phones. We can bust them out and do whatever, walk away, whatever. Um, but keeping people engaged in the actual application seemed like such a no brainer to me. Um, Blizzard has uh, Hearthstone. Now, 
it would be huge for Hearthstone to actually be launched on consoles, which it is not today. Um, and it is a very big, very popular game. So maybe Hearthstone's a little bit of a bridge too far just to be something that you would play while waiting for a queue. Um, but something that would have kept you engaged in in that experience of Overwatch. Um, and again, it can be lots of things, supplemental materials, um, looking at character models that are downloaded, you know, shopping a store. Um, and some of these have bits that would tie into online and they're already obviously being sweated out on their servers, you know, with all the stuff that's going on. But I feel like there is a way to have made it even a little bit more engaging than what we had um you know and again you could have practice bots that were local only you could have um it doesn't even have to be your unlockable characters you could just have like a bunch of faceless troops and you could run around and kind of get used to doing stuff there could be a tutorial that you could have um and back to the point of doing the multi-factor authentication with your phone number that's definitely something you can be handling while you're in the queue, I would think. Um, again, I'm not sure of the programming and flow that, that happened here, you know, and, and why it was put where it was and, and whatnot. And it was most painful because it was, you know, the, the, the launch and, and, and not only their DDoS attacks, but everybody just trying to log in and see what this whole Overwatch 2 thing's about. But man, I, I, I did feel like my time just wasn't respected at that moment. It was, it, was a, it was a bummer for that experience to happen the way that it did. And I'm hopeful that more games kind of look to that past of, of maybe building something in that like keeps folks busy when there's a possibility that you are going to have to wait for something. Uh, you know, obviously the goal is to just not have people wait and to reduce all that friction so that that doesn't experience. For online service games, that's a tough ask. I think even in this day and age, as much as technology uh, improved I think we're going to still have queues we're still going to have weights we're still going to have loading screens sometimes you know as games more get more complicated even having these fancy SSDs in the new consoles is not going to be enough to completely mitigate uh, or any load times it'll just obviously reduce them relative to having spinning platters so I don't know I don't I don't know that that is is really a needs to be a lost art. I think finding ways to kind of keep folks busy and engaged in your property um, or one of your properties. I mean, it's a great uh, sales, you know, <laughs> pitch for uh, other Blizzard uh, uh, games and, and experiences that, you know, you might be able to get people uh, synced into. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, and maybe it's just that I, 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 I'm maybe thinking about this old school and because everybody has a phone, they just figured it wasn't that big a deal. Um, I just, but there is no real handoff, right? Like I, I experienced it earlier when I tried to log in the first time and it just gave me a cue that wasn't moving along at all. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so I think that that's a, that's another thing where, where I think that we, we probably need to, to have, um, something that 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 thinks more forward ahead uh, to to what what the experience is is going to be when there's the inevitable load the inevitable queue the inevitable uh wait for the user um having some sort of uh experience and handoff between those things so hopefully they do something like that i would i'd like to see that uh, so that's Overwatch 2, and uh, mostly, again, just a rant on the experience of Overwatch 2's uh, uh, bumpy launch and not the game proper. I'm hoping by next week I will have actually immersed in a couple of rounds and I can talk a little bit more about the differences as I see them. Uh, as I stated a couple times here, being casual to the game, I'm not sure that I'll have caught every last thing that's different, but I, I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be things that are evident, so I look forward to talking about that. 
I guess we will, uh, oh, I'll look at here. I don't know that we're gonna have time for both of these things. I'm gonna kind of burn through the Pixel, uh, Google Pixel event, um, and then talk a bit about Stadia um, at the very end there. But I think the Pixel being that it just launched here um, and is something that is coming out versus something that is no longer going to be around is probably the more important of the two. Um, so kind of rattle off a couple other things that were, uh, announced uh that i i i, I caught um i being busy this morning i wasn't really able to spend a whole lot of time watching the the full video of, of it but you know catching little bits in a you know in a window in the corner while i was working on other things um first off uh pixel uh seven uh pixel seven and pixel seven pro are the new uh google pixel phones uh, that are coming out uh, there are uh there are specs out there i think I think that the specs are. I think that the the specs are probably maybe not quite as important here. I'm I'm trying to see if I I, was, I pulled up a couple of articles with the uh, chipset. So Google has a uh, a a chip that is inside of the uh, inside of the the. Google Pixel, I think it was the six that came out with this, and this is the Tensor um, chip. Um, and I guess uh, the, the the chip that's out now is the Tensor G2. And so this is like a, a processor that helps with several things. Um, they, uh, de they deal with on-device security. Um, allegedly, they kind of wall garden your... Um, your voice and your requests and stuff like that so that the processing of it stays encrypted and on your phone so that if it has to talk to the cloud to get information um, that it's not passing uh, much of your personal information and it's really only getting results which are also allegedly encrypted um, it does lots of other things um, the uh, but the tensor core is kind of their secret sauce for the uh the Pixel uh, 7, um, this Tensor G2 uh, chip that they have here. Um, so that's a big deal for it. Um, they're talking about, you know, the machine learning and the um, AI acceleration and all the other stuff that this thing does. It has different sized uh, cores inside of it with different speeds um, that will uh, allow it to, you know, do these various things as, as needed. Um, so uh, it's it's being touted as kind of a minor upgrade over last last year's uh, uh, system on a chip, the, the Tensor G1, I guess you'd call it. Um, but uh, but still, you know, it helps a lot with photography and a lot of, of, of things that lots of great sensors that are on this thing in terms of photography, by the way. Um, there's uh, the selfie cameras are updated uh, on, on these uh, phones. The design um, of the uh, lenses inside of the, I think I was just looking at the Pixel 7 Pro uh, when I saw this uh, piece, um, but they both have camera upgrades over previous generations, of course. They are doing some interesting things where they're sort of marrying the several lenses that are in this thing. You have your telephoto and your, uh, and your, your, uh, ultra wide lenses and all this and it's taking those lenses and the results of those lenses and it's fusing them and it's using machine learning to kind of figure out what the 
quality and zoom levels are so that it can composite all of that data into the best picture possible. Um, I don't know that, I mean, Google will have you believe that they are the first people to do that. I don't know that that is necessarily true, but but it did offer a very interesting uh, kind of demonstration of, of what it's like to have to zoom into something that's uh, 2x, 5x, um, and still get, you know, um, some great detail. Um, so a lot about that TensorCore is really about uh, assisting the camera uh, and, and the various lenses to do the work that they need to. Um, one of the things that I thought that was a little bit weird was there, they have a, uh, feature. There's like a, like a deep, like a, like a deep blur, um, sort of thing. Um, I, I don't remember the, I'm sure they have a marketing name for it, but, uh, whatever that uh, technology is. And it will, as long as your photos are on Google photos and, uh, and you have one of these pixel sevens, you can actually go into older pictures that you've taken either on other phones well mostly other phones because this apparently does this kind of magically when you're taking phones on the pixel 7 already but if it's an older photo that's blurred it will i guess use the tensor g2 core to fix those old pictures and sharpen them up um it's you know ai voodoo it's it, it's not going to you know create pixels that don't exist because the old photo only has what it has but using some of the uh, machine learning that's on the phone um, because they're only this isn't something that's solely cloud uh, based otherwise google photos in the cloud would just fix them all for you if you hit a button so it, it is using something on local processing for these tensor g2s to fix old pictures um, and i guess you know you would probably not just want to tell it to do them all and you know you could actually pick them one at a time uh, because you may want the blur in some pictures and so forth i thought it was interesting that they're doing that um, but they're also tying it to this product because I don't think that, uh, that would be an efficient way of doing that. If I have a cloud service like a Google photos and I dumped all my pictures in there and you now have the capability to fix them all, I assume that all of the cloud compute that Google has is more powerful than the one phone I have in my pocket. So why not just give that to everybody if they use Google photos? I'm not sure that that should have been tied as a, as a product, but, um, it was that, and that is something that they're, 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 they're doing there. Overall, the one thing I will say that's great about the Pixel 7 and Pixel 7 Pro is the price. Um, they are similar phones. I think the 7 Pro just has a, a, a slightly larger screen, maybe, um, in what I was seeing. And then um, camera, the camera array is a little bit bigger. Um, but mostly, certainly, uh, uh, similar phones. The Pixel 7 starts at $599, which is very cheap for a flagship phone. And then the 7 Pro, I believe, is $899. Um, so both of them being under 1000 and one of them being closer to $500 uh, is very impressive uh, in terms of that, uh, that the amount of features you're getting in these phones relative to the price. Uh, definitely uh, kind of shaking up the industry a little bit. I mean, the entry level, how do you say this? The entry level flagship phones from Samsung and Apple are starting at a thousand, right? Like they're, 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 they're expensive phones just to start. And when you start pushing up the sizes and the additional features and the additional models, I mean, you're getting north of 1500 and beyond, you know, with some of the fancier ones I was talking about my, uh, my galaxy fold. Um, I mean, those can be, you know, I think the new one splashed in at, you know, 16, $1,700. So they get really expensive really quickly. Um, and so to have these at such an aggressive price point to get them in people's hands is, uh, is smart. I, I know that the pixels are, uh, 
second to Samsung, certainly in terms of uh, popularity for Android phones. Um, it is a pretty wide uh, gulf between them. I think Samsung is, you know, orders of magnitude uh, more popular uh, across all of its uh, its various models relative to the Pixel. I will say that the um, Pixel, though, with this sort of aggressive pricing, may that may actually start, you know, taking a dent out of the um, the Samsung sales. I don't know that that's really necessarily anybody's point here because they're both Android, and I, I think to a large extent, you know, they they kind of you know coexist pretty well. Um, but it's interesting that they have so aggressively uh, priced them low um, just to get them in, in people's hands. So anyway, that's the Google Pixel Seven and Seven Pro. Um, a couple of their devices that they talked about. I don't know if I'm going to get every last one of them here, but the other two that I wanted to mention, um, which I think comprises most of what they talked about, um, is a Pixel Watch. We actually have a proper Pixel Watch from Google. Um, I recently got to uh, experience the uh, uh, Galaxy um, Watch, and I seemed to understand that that watch was going to be sort of the flagship one because they they partnered with uh, Google partnered with Samsung to make the the operating system that was running on Samsung watches be Google's Wear OS um, and not the Tizen or Tizen or however you say that their their proprietary one that that was running on the on the Samsung watches before. And so I, I, it seemed like that was the how they were forging ahead. They were going to, um, Samsung has outstanding industrial engineering and hardware design, and so they would make kind of the hardware here. But instead of developing the software, they would actually have this Wear OS kind of you know ver, you know, flavor of Android on there. That would be kind of the push forward. So it's interesting to see a, an actual Pixel Watch come out. Um, some brief hands-on. I was I was reading about these. Uh, they do look great. Um, the bezel's like a custom Gorilla Glass with a with a kind of uh, like a rounded edge around all of it, um, and it's got a, a twisty crown on the side, so you can uh, select things with it. Um, of course, the touchscreen as well. Um, lots of sensor stuff there. They're doing a lot around heart rate, um, which is interesting. Um, I don't remember exactly when, but but Google did purchase Fitbit uh, at one point, and the Fitbit acquisition, I guess, is now kind of coming full circle here with what they're doing with it, which is to kind of integrate it into the Pixel Watch. So the, a lot of the fitness stuff, which has been best in class for a very long time, um, as much as you know, Apple Watch has certainly pushed forward, and it looks like the Galaxy Watch has also done a lot of great strides there. Feels like Fitbit has always been sort of the gold standard uh, for a lot of fitness stuff, um, and certainly price performance, you know, uh, kind of ratios there have always been great too for for Fitbit stuff. So taking all that technology and everything that they have, um, sleep tracking, etc., all of that being is now being folded into this Pixel Watch. There's a Fitbit premium service of some kind that you can subscribe to, and I guess with this watch you also get six months of that. Um, I don't know what the what the split is there and and how um, what what the what the value proposition is and and, and what have you with that. Um, I do know on the Samsung side you don't have to pay for anything to get the the fitness stuff, and I feel like that's kind of like they already have you in the ecosystem. They already have you with a device that's not cheap, so I, I don't really love having yet another subscription just to track my health but whatever um so that's there as well um looks beautiful i mean it really looks like a nice watch for sure um it seems just a little bit small relative to i think it was 41 millimeter um 
and so that's a little bit on the small side but i guess because of those curved uh, glass edges that makes it feel a little bit more expensive than it is um, so we'll see i think that that'll be great i guess both the phone and that watch is supposed to be on on sale or up for pr order now and on sale next week um, so there'll be a lot of actual reviews kind of flooding the channel soon of these things and not just hands-on so i'm looking forward to seeing that i i, I think that this is Google's best push yet to make kind of this cohesive, almost Apple-like uh, ecosystem that they're advertising for folks. Um, to kind of complete that picture, they also teased out, um, this is something they started to talk about earlier in the year, and they actually showed much more about it now as a Pixel tablet. Um, so Android tablets have certainly been kind of the butt of a lot of jokes. I mean, it's really just get an iPad, right? Like that's what everybody says about, you know, tablets and iPads really did sort of um, just blow out that whole idea of having a, uh, a really, uh, effective device that is larger screen than your phone. Um, it really hasn't been a lot of the Android tablets that have punched at that same weight. Um, I know Samsung has had a couple that have been pretty good, but, but there really hasn't been, um, a big, uh, desire in the, in the, uh, industry to i shouldn't say the industry in the consumers to have another tablet that's not an ipad so it's interesting that google is taking a stab at this i'm um, again trying to make this cohesive pixel ecosystem this pixel tablet is going to be their kind of you know latest blush you know uh, trying to to bring a tablet into the uh into the industry so uh, it is an Android tablet. It looks nice. Um, you know, seems like the bezels are rather small. Um, some sort of ceramic-like material for the, the the backing of it. So lots of rounded edges. Um, seems like it's generally pretty good hardware. Um, one of the great things that they uh, they they threw up some ads or ads. Um, this whole thing was an ad. Um, they threw up some. Uh, um, some info uh, uh that some research that you know allegedly the company did and uh when they were asking like how people use tablets and i did find that interesting they said 80 percent of tablet usage is homebound so these are devices that stay home they don't usually go on the road with people and go to places um and uh i uh, don't know that that's exactly the you know a perfect number there you know i'm sure it's you know whatever subset or sampling of, of what they what they tried to pull in but I did think that an interesting statistic and uh i've had you know tablets in the home before i i will say that generally speaking while they will occasionally leave the home that that is not um that is not typical you know it is it is mostly a home device um one of the interesting things with that is so they're they've they've added um a a very specific thing that i thought was a very clever idea um there is a a magnetic base that you'll be able to lock your your tablet to um so that it it it's almost like a stand it will it will hold the tablet with magnets that are built into both the stand and in, in the back of the tablet itself um so that it it becomes like a smart screen in your home um and it has that sort of kind of uh, ambient mode where you know it can show photos and whatnot and you can talk to it with the google assistant um it will charge through that magnet which is great so that it'll keep the, the tablet charged at all times the magnet 
base that it plugs into or that it uh, attaches to via magnet plugs in in addition to charging it it is also a smart speaker um so that that base will actually also be able to you know produce audio instead of having to use the tablets uh, speakers if you if you so choose um so another great kind of use to kind of tie all those things together um i do think uh, now the one thing about the pixel tablet is they are not launching that next week they just said 2023 and they did not even give a time so it could be a year from now um I would imagine less than that, you know, because it seems to be somewhat mature what they're what they're talking about already. Um, but I do think that that's a that's a big differentiator um, because it is true. I mean, they even mentioned it in in uh, the 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 slides that they were showing that the tablet sometimes is just you know is hanging off of a wall work charging in the corner somewhere or it's thrown into a, a drawer and doesn't have any power when you need it or it's not always necessarily as accessible as it should be and there has you know and i mean there's you know charging stations and stuff that have you know that are just bristling with wires that you can plug it into um people have tried to solve this aftermarket but it's interesting that they have like a, a secondary use for this thing that it becomes an ambient smart display in your house when it's not being used as a tablet um kind of surprised nobody's really done that maybe quite as directly before i don't want to say nobody's tried it but I, I i'm not familiar with a lot of companies that have tried this particular thing so um i think that's a smart play and i think that's probably the most attractive thing about an android tablet i think most of the apps you want on a tablet all the media consumption apps are probably on there so really it just has to have the right amount of performance and it's you know gotta you know it's just got to be able to, to launch the things you want to uh, use on it so uh, my expectation is that would be the case there is a new version of android 13 coming out now and 12l right before it which is 12l is already out and for foldables like my phone and and uh and any android tablets there are features in android that are now tablet focused that weren't really there quite as much before and so i think that that will this will be a perfect example of of uh getting to use uh the uh the tablet um as a true tablet not just a big phone um that becomes you know sort of unwieldy um to use so anyway that's what i saw about the pixel uh show it and it, it uh it will be uh It'll be a fascinating kind of uh, take on what I think Google has been thirsting after, which is the, uh, which is that push towards uh, making a uh, a cohesive ecosystem that will, you know, not to be too cynical about it, but will lock people in, you know, in the same way that Apple has um, by having all these devices that work together with one another. They actually had one of their their folks go up and, and sort of demonstrate how all of these experiences flow between them. Um, there's some software bits around the Google Home <clears throat> application, excuse me, that has a, a that is going to flow a little bit more and you know you can you can use all these devices to to control all the various bits in in your smart home so uh so we'll see how that that works i i, I think google's strength has always been its flexibility um and not their vertical stack of, of devices so if they can do both i think that'll be effective for them uh, so we'll probably see more of that here in the next few weeks as reviews actually come out and then I guess the last bit to talk about before I uh, sign off with y'all um, is uh, Stadia. Um, speaking of uh, <laughs> Google products, um, they uh, have had a cloud-only gaming service for some time. Um, 
not certainly not the first one um, on live and a couple of others, um, you know, over the years have tried it. Uh, uh, Microsoft has their X cloud, you know, service or, you know, Xbox cloud gaming or whatever they're, they're naming it these days. Um, and the technology for Google Stadia has been pretty darn sound. It has been one of the most impressive uh, there. They've certainly thrown a lot of money at, you know, getting uh, internal development happening and getting a bunch of contracts and deals with folks to come in. Um, it seems, though, that it hasn't uh, really taken off uh, and uh, even in the hearts and minds of folks. I mean, I've had a chance to play with it a little bit and it is fine. It has worked. Um, I think with the Internet infrastructure that we have to this day, it's only it, it, it being your primary way of consuming gaming, I think, is always going to be uh uh, or heretofore will not, not always, but heretofore will have been questionable. Um, and it's more of a nice add on, um, in that way, Microsoft adds Xbox cloud gaming to game pass. So like you're paying for game pass and then you just get this bonus, right? Whereas it, it, it so it isn't really the primary way of consuming games. It's just an, an, an additional way in which you can consume your games. And I think that that's a good idea. And I think that's how you should should do that for now, um, simply because it's, the technology just isn't there. It's not even necessarily Microsoft's fault or Google's fault. Amazon has Luna. Um, there, you know, there are other services that have tried this before, but it truly is like internet infrastructure just isn't there. Um, certainly not in the United States and in most parts of the world. Um, so um, unfortunately, um, pouring one out for Google Stadia here, they have decided that as of January, they're shuttering the entirety of the project. Um, they will be moving uh, some of the technology um, to other parts of the business, um, the streaming uh, technology that they've developed here um, and find other ways to use it, um, which I think is you know great. I'm glad they're salvaging some of the engineering bits of it. Um, but it's sad because I, I feel like there, there's a ton of money wasted there, um, that, uh, if the business model was different, um, if they had maybe partnered with some folks, I, I wonder if they could have done that a little bit uh, better and it would have had even longer legs than, than it did apparently. Um, so, uh, I'm going to kind of put a pin in the Stadia stuff because I, I do, I think there's a larger unpack to, to do about that. And I definitely Rich has actually had some experience around, I think it was on live. Um, he'll, he'll, he'll keep us honest next week when, when we talk, but, uh, but I think that, I, I think that with Stadia, I think that's, a um, uh, it's it's a bummer. I I, I want to always see the, the the technology pushed forward. I kind of felt at the beginning that their their take on that um, from a business perspective was flawed, um, and so we'll, we'll unpack more of that next week. But I, I was uh, uh, still sad to see the the entirety of their their business and any real you know uh, new forward looking gaming technology. You know, no matter what it is, VR or anything else, I, I want to see it succeed and grow because I, I do want to see this medium pushed forward. Um, so kind of an unfortunate thing, but we'll be sure to unpack that a little bit more next week as, as, as time allows. But, uh, that's what we have this week. Uh, I thank every one of you for sticking with me for uh, a solo episode here. Um, uh, look forward to seeing Rich uh, on the pod with me next week and we will, uh, we will unpack all things gaming and technology at that time. See you guys later. <laughs>